The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a Chief Compliance Officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox, and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This month I am joined by Scott Sullivan. Scott is the Chief Integrity and Compliance Officer at Newmont Corporation. Scott is a longtime compliance practitioner, having led a Fortune 500, $5 billion uh, corporation in their business integrity and compliance function. We take up uh, four episodes over the month of July. In episode one, we take a look at the empathetic CCO and what does empathy mean in the context of being a CCO. In episode two, fit for purpose and reading the tea leaves, in other words, staying in front of the wolf pack. In episode three, we consider what does a CCO want from his or her team. And in episode four, we consider what will the CCO of the future look like? What are the skills that will be needed and what are the toolkit that a CCO must have? It's a fascinating exploration of a longtime chief compliance officer. He's been in uh, our profession for uh, nearly uh, 14 or 15 years, so he's got lots of insights. I know you will enjoy this month's guest, Scott Sullivan, and I know you will learn a lot from him. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening to this month with Scott Sullivan on The Compliance Life. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode with Scott Sullivan, the Chief Integrity and Compliance Officer at Newmont Corp. Scott, first of all, welcome back. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. Scott, today we wanted to take up the topics of fit for purpose and reading the tea leaves, or I think, as you would say, staying in front of the wolf pack. Um, One of the things that I've been uh, intrigued by evolutionary-wise for compliance is really the move towards data. And even uh, recently, we had the Department of Justice release a update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs where they talked about how a compliance function uh, needs to to utilize data. So I wanted to, to ask you, what are some of the key data points that you found important from the CCO perspective? So I think absolutely the Department of Justice is sort of beginning to codify what what the business and compliance community has been looking at for a number of years now. I even go back to saying if I was building a team from scratch today, I would have a project manager, a data analytics person, and a um, sort of a training and comms person almost before I'd add the lawyer to the team. So data analytics is becoming such an important piece of the puzzle to help you move further along the curve from detection to prevention in, in the first place, which is really kind of the, the holy grail for compliance. If you can get to a point where by pulling all this data together, you can predict uh, behavior or get to a hot spot before it gets too hot, that's, that's fantastic. I think the devil is in the details of figuring out what data sets you can get access to. So historically, compliance hasn't been tops on the data list internally in the organization. But it's also maybe perhaps more importantly is 
the data set itself, is there integrity in the data? So can you rely on it? There's a lot of preparatory work. A lot of companies have multiple systems and ERP systems and data pools, et cetera. So really being able to pull in that data and being able to mine it, I think is, is critical. So all the, the business data you would expect on third parties and um, travel entertainment expenses, all of that kind of choreographed in a script that pulls together things to perhaps maybe it's a, a group that has higher risk or a region or a site or something like that, where you can start to get more towards the predictive side. I think that's really the a real value compliance can bring in the future. Scott, one of the phrases that has become almost ubiquitous is that CCOs need a seat at the table. And I, as probably as much as anyone said that several years ago, but I think now it's, it's not just having a seat at the table. It's not just simply sitting at the grown-up table. It's engaging and being a part of the, the leadership team. And I was wondering if you could talk about the, that evolution and what you've seen. Yeah, I think the key is, so it really probably started with the federal sentencing guidelines beginning to talk about access to the board, to the senior most uh, governing body in the organization. And over time, that's morphed into more things where you don't want a filtering or a weeding out process of the data, the board needs to get that sort of unbiased, unfiltered view of what's going on. And that's done differently at different organizations, depending on the, the formality of the organization, the institutional structure of the organization. But having that seat at the table is so critical to be able to get in on the front end of, of advising the business uh, before it gets too deep into something. So whether it's entering into joint ventures, uh, major acquisitions, uh, dealing with significant third parties or political issues, whatever those may be, having the compliance officer at this at the table is is something that's just kind of good insurance. It gives you another voice, which is is similar and complementary to legal, but it is a different perspective on those types of things. So, in terms of the types of information that you presented to the board, is it been a situation where they have? ask you either direct, pointed, or, or broad-based questions, or you really had to guide them uh, for them to understand what their oversight role was? So I think it's a two-way street. I mean, uh, board members are very sophisticated, obviously, given the roles that they play and, and the levels they've achieved in their careers. Sometimes the subject matter is a little foreign to them. So having an opportunity to not just present data, here's the case findings, or here's what we're doing as a program, but I always try to slip in some educational pieces. Hey, here's what the most recent research on a particular topic said, or hey, here's a great article, or here's a slide on what the Department of Justice recently came out with. So trying in the process by presenting them, here's what the program looks like and the risks, uh, by bringing that educational component, I think it does a nice rounding job of that. So I think it's really important to try to bring both the data sets and the education into the mix. When we had the 2013 uh, COSO framework around internal controls, one of the things they emphasized was the need for external information for your internal controls program. And I really tried to incorporate that concept into my advice on compliance programs. But I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key external sources for information you've utilized over the years? So I think uh, there's a lot of different sources. Benchmarking, I think, is absolutely critical. A lot of companies have high-performance peer groups that are at least publicly traded companies. So to the extent you can find comparable data, 
that resonates really well with with the management team because that's the business benchmark they go off of themselves. So if you can try to gather information on the compliance side, what is that same business peer group doing? If you can't do that, having industry specific knowledge is fantastic because it brings the context. You know, you don't want it to be myopic where all you're looking at is within your industry, but kind of comparing structure, form. Uh, resources, approach to different topics and things is is absolutely important. You're also going to always be looking out for any kernel of information that comes out from the government. So again, pointing to the recent DOJ update to the guidance, enforcement actions, there's always great kernels of information in there. And there's a tremendous, the compliance and, and, and ethics community is great at sharing and exchanging information and being and partnering with those. So I have a great network of professional colleagues that if I have a question, I can pose it to them. If I, hey, I need a, I need a document. Can you share something with me that's not confidential? And, and so that having that network is is fantastic to 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 rely on and to really get a good perspective as to make sure again you're in that wolf pack, you're not falling behind, and you may not also want to be the Mercedes or the uh, or the Cadillac version out in front. And I'd like to pick up on that last point because I started my corporate career as a transactional lawyer in an oil service company before I moved to the uh, CCO role. And as a tra- transactional lawyer, uh, we did not share information with lawyers who worked at our competitors. And when I got to the CCO role, I, I was just stunned that the information that was shared between compliance officers. And you mentioned that you had colleagues literally across the country that uh, you could call upon for advice. So I was wondering if I guess I know the answer now to what you've seen in the compliance community in terms of the sharing of information. It, it is great. It's it's like no other um, legal or professional community that I've seen. Maybe there's some some of that stuff in the IT community, but I think compliance certainly leads the charge there. Look, there are certain restrictions you have to be careful. You got to make sure in your industry that you're abiding by any antitrust rules and regulations when you're you're meeting with groups of of, of competitors. Uh, and, and I try to do cross industry. So I don't want to just learn from my industry because financial institutions may have fantastic stuff on AML or there may be somebody that's gone through an enforcement action that's now doing things. So that, that ability to share that information and learn from leading or best practices or what others have done so you don't have to repeat the mistake or the errors of their way. That that's again, to me, is a great way to go about learning and improving your program. I'd like to go back to external information. Now, I saw you use that once because, once again, this is a story that uh, stuck with me for a long time about specifically your work as a CCO. And I remember it because it was the Monday after the Walmart story broke uh, in the Sunday New York Times. And I called you to make sure you knew about it and said, yeah, Tom, not only do I know about it, I've already been able to brief uh, senior executives on it. And I think you said you took a copy of the the Times in, and it wasn't the journal, I'm sorry, the Times in and, and showed them where the story was above the fold. Are the those not really anecdotal stories, but stories that might be completely outside your industry, yet show the huge potential reputational damage of a compliance violation? Are those the kinds of things that you found persuasive with senior execs? Yeah, I think yes. So certainly they they should be aware of those types of things. And uh, you know, Walmart was one, Siemens was another. There's been a couple other investigation investigative reports when Unoil came out, another good example. So I think those are all important. You got to be careful that you're not just kind of running in all the time with 
the sky is falling. So, hey, you know, one of my, I remember on Siemens is, hey, we don't have a $500 million slush fund for bribes. So you got to be careful that the employee base doesn't see this as so unlikely to happen that they just ignore it. So matching the message to to the audience is really important. And picking and choosing your battles. I can't go in every day to the CEO or the leadership team with another story. What are the ones that are going to really resonate and maybe move the needle in terms of their thinking or in terms of what they should be doing as leaders? Let me take that with a little bit different spin on it because you said something really interesting there. Uh, and I've used the Airbus case as this example. Uh, largest international anti-corruption enforcement action ever, $3.9 billion in fines and penalties, uh, three major enforcement actions in France, England, and the United States. And many compliance professionals struggle with simply getting their arms around it. And, and then it's, how does this apply to my company? How, how can I talk about systemic corruption in China in the airline industry? And so what I've tried to do is, is really just pick out a few nuggets that they can use. Have you been able to use that same strategy? Yeah, I think, as you said, you can overwhelm people. That it's either never going to happen to us and you tune it out or it's just crazy and this is the Wild West. So a lot of times those enforcement actions have real extreme examples. So I always go to try to find what's the stuff where maybe you have an employee who inadvertently stepped into something, didn't realize it, and then gets pulled in. So where Because the 1% or 2% that maybe are the bad apples, you want to try to find them and exit them from your organization. The overwhelming majority of people are good people that want to do the right thing. They may be in a bad circumstance on a particular day, week, or month, whatever that may be. So you really want to find examples for them of how to help them avoid the pitfalls of getting sucked into a case, making sure they know how these things happened and where they, most importantly, where they can go inside the organization to get help if they need it. I always say, hey, look, I'd rather be the one that loses sleep at night rather than the employees. So come to us, be transparent, be fully transparent, and let us give you the guidance. And then if we fail, the issue is with us, not with you. Scott, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our next episode where we take a look at not only what does the CCO want or need from their team, but also some of your uh, top leadership lessons for a compliance team. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode with Scott Sullivan in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.